Well, good morning, church. Yeah, and happy birthday, by the way. Um, What I mean by that is on the Christian calendar, today is the celebration of Pentecost, uh, which happened 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. There's a celebration of the Feast of First Fruits or Harvest. The disciples are gathered up in the upper room. The Holy Spirit has poured out the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. It's also Memorial Day weekend, which in our country is a celebration of freedom and the sacrifice. And so literally within our own calendar are messages of harvest and spirit and freedom, which means it's a great day to finish our series, uh, Living in the Spirit. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 5. And uh, we're going to jump back into the text that we've been looking at for several weeks. Uh, But as you turn there, maybe a little confession for me as we had started this morning. I am not a runner. Amen. (laughs) Amen. There we go. Now, that doesn't mean I don't run. I try to run. It just means that I don't like running. Like, runners talk about when they run, they just, you know, feel the presence of God and they just feel alive. That is not the way that I feel when I run. Uh, runners talk about hitting the runner's wall and then you bust through the wall to the runner's high. Can I tell you, I have never, I have hit the runner's wall, I've never hit the runner's high. The runner's high to me is the moment I stop running. That's what I call the runner's high. And I'm the kind of runner that literally, it's a whole mental negotiation the whole time I'm running. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm looking for a hole that I can step in so I can break my ankle so I don't have to feel bad about not running. But every year it feels like, you know, I gain a couple extra pounds and so uh, oftentimes in our community and especially in years past, our community get together and we would do some kind of exercise and fitness challenge. I remember one year, uh, someone came up with the idea that we were gonna all run a half marathon. And, you know, I didn't think it was a good idea, but they thought it was a good idea, so we signed up for the, the, the half marathon. But honestly, you know, I had driven around, and I'd seen people with that 13.1 sticker on the back of their car. I really wanted that on my car. It never dawned on me that I could just go buy the sticker and stick it on, but, you know, I thought, well, let's really, you know, earn it. And so uh, we, we signed up for the marathon in Greenville, South Carolina, and, and uh, we printed out our training schedules, and we posted them up everywhere. And I meant to train. Like, I mean, I really intended to train. But, you know, I was leading and meetings would go wrong and along and I would bring in my workout clothes and just for some reason I couldn't get to it that day. And before you know it, it's the day of the race and I have not trained at all. But I'm thinking, you know what? I played soccer in college. I can just go out there and run. It's just 13.1 miles. I can kind of gut that out. And so, you know, we uh, go the night before and we get our swag and that feels pretty good. We go carb up and I did really good at that, at carving up the night before. And then all of a sudden it's the morning of the race and we go down there, it's early in the morning. Uh, They gather with the starting line, they shoot the gun, goes off. I'm running with my buddy, David Reikley, and we start the race and it starts out at like a seven minute a mile pace which is cooking for a guy like me, that's moving. And you know, we're running and we get through mile one and I'm like Rocky, I'm just throwing water on my face and we get through mile two, mile three, mile four. About mile six, I get this thing called a side cramp. 
And I just go to Dave, why don't you go ahead and go on? I'm going to hang back here a little bit. And I kept running, but slowed the pace. Eventually, we get to mile nine and 10. And we got to mile nine and 10 at the Greenville Half Marathon. It was straight uphill. When we finished mile 10, I just decided, you know what? I just need to walk for a moment. And when I did, my whole body started shutting down. Literally, if mile one was seven minute a mile pace, mile 11, 12, 13 were like 35 minute a mile pace. Literally, there are old ladies in walkers passing me and the competitive part of me wants to tackle them because I don't want them to get ahead. But, you know, I didn't even have the energy to do that. And if you've ever run a race, been part of the racing community, one of the beautiful things is that people who have finished come back out and cheer, and people come and line the streets, especially the last few miles, and they, they, they line the streets, and they're cheering, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. But I'm looking in their eyes, and what their eyes are telling me is, I don't think he can do it. I don't think he can do it. I don't think he can do it. And so I, I barely get across the finish line and totally collapse. A year later, we run the same half marathon. But this time, instead of just going down with not training, we, I actually took part in Hal Higdon's method of training, which was you walk a minute, and then you run for three minutes, you walk a minute, you run for three minutes, you walk a minute, you run for three minutes. And a year later, same half marathon, I knock like 30 minutes off my time, and when I get done, I'm not nearly as exhausted as I was. Here's what I learned about running marathons. When it comes to running marathons, pace is as important as, as passion. Training is more important than trying. And attention is more important than intention. First marathon, it was built on passion and trying and intention. Second one, pace training, and attention. I bring that up this morning because we talk about living in the spirit. I want to suggest to you, living in the spirit follows the same pattern. As we've heard from, from, from Gary and Pierce earlier, that you can't produce the fruit of the spirit yourself. You can't just try harder to produce this kind of life. But just because you can't try harder doesn't mean you can't train and be attentive to the work of the Spirit, at the pace of the Spirit, to see God produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. In fact, I want to suggest to you this is exactly the same kind of methodology that Paul is using here in Galatians chapter 5. Now remember, the, the, the book of Galatia was, was written to a fledging and kind of floundering church in one of the most dangerous places of the ancient world. It's the place where Paul in his first missionary journey turns to go up there and John Mark says, nope, not going there. And it's a church that has been split in multiple factions. They disagree theologically, they disagree socially, they disagree sexually. I mean, they've got factions around, you know, what the gospel is in their theology. They got factions around Jew and Gentile socially and factions around men and women kind of sexually. They're splintering apart and Paul writes to them to reestablish what the gospel is and from the gospel then 
the great marker of what it means to be Christian is are you living in the Spirit? Are you driven by, empowered by the Spirit of God? Is there any mark of the Spirit of God in your life? And the manifestation of that is a life of freedom which expresses itself in fruit. Listen to the way that Paul says this, verse 16. I know this is familiar. Let's read it again. So I say to you, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not, ha- you do, not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in pace or in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So Paul is writing to reestablish the gospel And the gospel for for Paul is not just simply about forgiveness, it's about freedom. Now, I know when we talk about freedom in the world that we live in today, we need to redefine freedom because we live in a world that believes freedom is the ability to do anything you want to do. Can I tell you, freedom is not the ability to do anything you want to do. Because if freedom is the ability to do anything you want to do, I know a lot of people who are doing anything they want to do that find themselves in incredible captivity. Here's the big truth today. Freedom is not the ability to do anything you want to do. Freedom is the capability of becoming who you were always destined to be. Let me say that again. Freedom is not the ability to do anything you want to do. Freedom is the capability of becoming who you were always destined to be. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul writes about this. He talks about the work of the gospel. That the gospel, yes, it forgives us, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins and and through Christ and his death and burial and resurrection, he forgives us those things and, and, and he raises us to life. But the second part of the gospel is that it releases your freedom. He said, for you are God's workmanship in verse 10, God's masterpiece, God's one of a kind, divine design. And he says, prepared to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you. In other words, God's been having a dream about your life from the beginning of time. And part of what the gospel does is it recovers who God in his imagination dreamed you to be and sets you free to live that life. Freedom is not the ability to do anything you want to do. It's the capability of becoming who you were always destined to be. And as the gospel does that, it invites us into a way of life that's called living in the spirit, that we're in the middle of a conflict. I love the way that Gary talked about this. You got to decide which dog you're going to feed. Are you just going to feed the flesh? 
Or are you gonna dare to feed the spirit? And as you do, fruit, not fruit plural, but fruit singular is produced. And the fruit singular tastes like love and goodness and kindness. In other words, it's all not like, I'll choose this one, not this. It's all together one fruit. It's kind of like the coffee you got when you got in here. It's not just coffee, right? There's sugar and cream and caramel. And some of you don't even have hardly any coffee in your coffee, right? It's all one drink, but it's got multiple flavors that are bursting through it. It's all one drink, but it's got different notes, different hints of things that it's been cooked in or seared in or distilled in, and, 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 it, and it creates one kind of fruit. And so Paul says the way this fruit's produced is when you set your mind on, on the spirit things. In other words, when it comes to defeating the flesh in my life, I could say don't do something, but it's, it's kind of like this. If I tell you today, don't think of a banana, what do you think of? I mean, I really, really, try hard not to think of a banana. Don't think of a banana. You know, if I say don't do it, all you can think about is a banana, right? But what if I do this? What if I say, think about an orange? Then all of a sudden, you're not thinking about a banana anymore, right? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, set your mind on the spirit kinds of things, and as you do, what the law can't do because it just says, don't do, don't do, don't do, the spirit can do because it sets your mind in a totally different kind of place. And as you do, the fruit of the Spirit emerges. Now, today we're talking and wrapping up the series, really talking about self-control, what some might interpret as temperance or others would talk about self-mastery. It's really the power to become who you were destined to be. It's the same word that's used for athletes who discipline their body to be able to perform and do the things that they wanna do. It's a sense of the power with which you live with. In other words, are you being ruled and reigned by other things or are you ruling and reigning over things? That's what self-control is about. And in regard to this journey of self-control, I wanna suggest to you there are three battles that often rule and reign over us that keep us from living in self-control. Here's the first one. It's about our cravings. We're gonna talk about that in just a moment. It's the battle within us. It's about our circumstances, and that is the battle outside of us. And it's about conflict, and that's the battle between us. In other words, I'm perfectly in control of myself until I give in to the things that are raging inside of me or the things that are raging outside of me or the things that are raging between us, which is about all the time, right? And these things tend to rob us of living in self-mastery or self-control. So let's go through them and let's talk about the way that the life of the Spirit invites us to live in a different way. So the first one is this craving. It's the battle inside of us that I have perfect peace and harmony and, and self-mastery until all of a sudden I start to need things. Now when I talk about cravings, I'm not talking about the, the kind of cravings that, that Gary was talking about last week, the, the real cravings of our life. I'm talking about the tendency to solve the real cravings of our life with lesser things. 
And, and we see Jesus dealing with this. If you have a Bible, Luke chapter four, think about this. Um, as Jesus goes into the wilderness, Luke chapter four, he's come out of the waters of baptism. And it says in verse one, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Look down at verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus goes in the desert, led by the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, but he comes out of the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit, which means what he deals with in the desert determines the power with which he lives. All the miracle of Jesus happen on the backside of the desert. Because he deals with some things in the desert that determine the power which he lives with. Here's the first one. We're just gonna get to the first one in regard to our cravings. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry, which I think is like the biggest understatement in the entire Bible, right? He hasn't eaten for 40 days, he's a little hungry. I don't eat for four hours, and I'm famished, right? The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, notice the challenge to the identity. He's just been told who he is in the waters of baptism. This is my son, whom I love, and him I'm well pleased. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. So here's Jesus, he's in the wilderness, he hasn't eaten for 40 days, he's hungry, he's on a 40-day fast, and Satan comes up to him and says, if you are the son of God, because the battles are always gonna challenge us to give into a lesser version of who God's called us to be. If you are a son, the son of God, he says, turn these stones into bread. What's the temptation for Jesus? Here's the temptation. In your needs, you become your own provider. Satisfy your own cravings. You can't really depend on your father to meet your needs, so you need to take your needs into your own hands and you need to solve it. I'm not a great faster. People talk about when they fast, drawing close to God. When I fast, I'm usually angry at God, it feels like. Dallas Willard said, when you are fasting, if you're fasting, he says, if you are hungry when you are fasting, you are not fasting, you are still learning to fast. If that is true, I've never fasted a day in my entire life because I'm hungry the whole time I'm fasting. All I can think about is the food, right? I remember a couple of years ago, I was on a week-long fast. I felt like the Lord was leading me to a week-long fast where I wasn't gonna eat any solid food, just drinking drinks. And it got to be about Wednesday and I was dying. I was thinking, I need to go to the, to the gas station, at least get a Coke or something to put in my stomach. So I go to the gas station, and when I go in the gas station door, there is an advertisement for chicken wings. And I love chicken wings. I could eat chicken wings every day of the week. And I'm sitting there, I can almost smell it on the door. I can, and, and then all of a sudden it dawns on me, Dave, these are gas station chicken wings. These aren't even good chicken wings. This isn't Pluckers or something like that. This is gas station but here I am about to sell my soul for a vat of chicken wings, right? And how many times do we do that? We settle for a lesser life, we settle to become a lesser self because we think in regard to our identity, here's the battle, here's the temptation, I am what I need. So if I'm, I, I, you know, I, I need a spouse, I am single. 
If I need money, I am poor. We start to identify with the need and then we start to let the need rule and reign over us. We start to provide for our own needs and how many times in our lives have our cravings, have my cravings sabotaged my life with God? And so a life of the spirit, Jesus says, here's, here's the answer. Here's what God's trying to build. He's trying to build faith that says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's what faith is. Faith is hearing the voice of God and trusting the heart of God enough to act on what you've heard. In other words, he's saying this, I choose to believe that my dad is good and he's my provider. So I don't have to become what I need but instead I can bring my cravings to God and like Gary talked about last week, he can satisfy those cravings in the things that truly satisfy. But how many times does my cravings lead me to simply be mastered? In other words, here's what we're saying. When I surrender my cravings to God, self-mastery becomes greater than self-indulgence. Uh, this is huge because, you know, when it comes to the gospel, I know lots of Christians who know how to be forgiven, but I know few Christians who know how to be free. We, we believe half the gospel and so really what our lives look like is just we live any way the world does. We just have a big I'm sorry at the end of our life. And God is saying, no, 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 I've designed you for a different kind of life. Don't give in to your self-indulgence. Rather, master yourself and see yourself the way that I do. You are not your need. And God says, I will meet your needs and what I'm trying to grow in you is faith so that you can learn to trust me to give you every. Peter says, everything you need for a life of godliness you already have in Christ. Now let's go further because we're running out of time here. The second is not just cravings, it's circumstance. If cravings are about the battle inside of us, then circumstance is about the battle outside of us. It's easy for me to be Self-mastered, it's easy for me to be in self-control as long as my circumstances are going well, right? This is what Pierce talked about when he talked about joy, that oftentimes we confuse joy with happiness because happiness is determined on our circumstances. And so as long as my circumstances are good, then I'm in control, but all of a sudden my circumstances fall apart and my whole life starts to fall apart and my view of God starts to fall apart because here's what happens for a lot of us. A lot of us are looking at God through our circumstances rather than seeing our circumstances through the lens of God. So here's what that kind of life looks like. It looks like, man, as long as my circumstances are good, God's good, but when all of a sudden my circumstances are broken, I start to believe that God is broken. Versus looking at even broken circumstances through the lens of God. Now, our, broken, our circumstances break for lots of different ways, in lots of different ways, but, but the two most prominent where our life falls apart are our consequence and suffering. Here's the difference. Consequence is when my life falls apart because of the bad decisions that I make. Suffering is when my life falls apart because of the good decisions that I make. 
In other words, when I walk away from God and I choose things that aren't of God, there's a death and a destruction and despair that comes into my life because of consequences of those choices. But the hard part about suffering is I'm not making those choices. It's not that I'm choosing the brokenness. It's that the brokenness feels like it's choosing me because I'm going after God, going after all the right things, and my life is falling apart. And if I'm not careful, circumstances will rob me of the self-control that God wants to manifest through me. There's no better picture of this than in Job. Job, if you've read the Old Testament, is a guy, the Bible says, who is upright, he's righteous. And Satan comes to God and says, well, the only reason that Job's following you is because all the circumstances in his life are great. Take away the circumstances and he will no longer have faith in you. So in the span of a couple hours, Job goes from on the top of the world to the bottom of the world. Literally, his fortune is taken from him, his family, his kids die in a tragic accident. In chapter two, his health is taken from him. And his wife, who's just seen God through circumstances, come to him and says, just curse God and die. And, and Job says, no, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it's not an easy journey for Job. Literally, he's got friends who jump into his mess and make it worse. Anyone got those kind of friends? You know, you're, you're hoping they will help you, but they come in and just say, oh man, it's all about you, bro. You, you really messed up big time. That's what they're telling. They're saying, really, your life is just a, a consequence. And Job's saying, no, no, this isn't consequences of suffering. And Job goes through his own journey. It's not easy. I love the honesty that we find in the book of Job. In, in chapter 13, in Job's journey, he's calling out for an umpire. He's like, if I just get someone to call fouls. Anyone watching the NBA playoffs? Anyone watch that game last night, by the way? I was like, how am I gonna preach tomorrow morning when this is gonna keep my adrenaline up all night, right? But every time down the floor, the offensive team believes they've been fouled and the defense team believes it has committed no foul, every time. It's a great commentary on the world that we live in today. There's always someone who thinks they've been fouled and someone who believes no foul has been committed. And if we could just get a referee to call the fouls right, then we could master our own lives. And Job says, I just need an umpire. But by chapter 16, he says, no, 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 umpire's not gonna work for me. I need an advocate. If I could just get someone to speak up for me, if I could just get someone to take me before a judge and to plead my case, then I would be all right. But by chapter 19, he says, no, no, I don't need a, a umpire or a referee, and I don't need an advocate. Here's what I need. Listen to it. In chapter 19, verse 25, the very beginning, he, he said, I feel like I've been tricked. I feel like I've been betrayed. Seven metaphors he gives in chapter 19 about his plight. But in verse 25, he says this, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin and bones have been destroyed, yet in the end, my flesh will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another. How my heart yearns within me. He says, you know what I need in my life? I don't need just simply an umpire or a referee. I don't need an advocate. I need a redeemer. I mean, the baptism, one of the words was redemption. It's this, this goel, this kinsman redeemer. And what it is, I need someone to live my life for me. 
I need someone to do what I can't do for me. And in our circumstances, this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 8, 28, when he says, all things work together for good. I'll never forget going through a deep valley time in my life with all kinds of pain. I'm trying to serve God. I'm playing soccer in college. I have two ACL reconstructions and I'm looking at God saying, I don't get you because what my circumstances are telling me about you is you're picking on me. I'll never forget walking into First Baptist Church, West Palm Beach, and the pastor there was preaching from Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. And he looked at us and he said, here's what that doesn't say. It doesn't say that all things are good. In fact, there's some bad things. You're living in a broken world. And there's some bad and broken things that'll happen. But here's what the promise is, that God will take even the bad things and work them for good. This is the way that we win in regard to our circumstances. Because the battle of our circumstances is that I start to believe that I am what I'm going through. That I am this sickness or I am this disease or I am this challenge. But what God is trying to build in the middle of circumstances is fortitude. It's a sense of resilience, it's a sense of perseverance. In other words, it's in our circumstances where God is not just developing your faith in him, he's demonstrating his faith in you. I know we talk a lot about faith in Jesus, but do we ever think about the faith of Jesus? Jesus had more faith in his disciples than his disciples had in him. So he's looking at you in the middle of your circumstances that are falling apart and saying, I believe in you because here's the deal. You can't have a story without a struggle. You can't have a testimony without a test. And instead of just delivering you right away, I'm believing so much in you because here's the deal. When you are following God, everything's going well. People may listen, but when you are following God and everything falls apart, people can't help but notice. And the problem with pain and suffering is that pain and suffering makes great Christians, but it also makes great atheists. Listen to the story of a believer that is deep in God, and you will probably at some point hear a story of pain, but listen to an atheist who has given up their faith in God, and you will also hear a story of pain. The battle of circumstances, the battle of self-mastery winning against self deception. You are not what you are going through. You don't have to be ruled by that. You are not defined by that. If your life is a sentence, the subject may feel inferior. The verb may be violent. The direct object may feel overwhelming, but the hope of the Christian is that the last word belongs to God and it is good. And if it's not good yet, God's not done. He is working in the circumstances and he's showing you, he's revealing stuff to you about you that you didn't even know was there or believe was there. There's more to you than you know, but God is not content till all of that is revealed. And self-control is about going through circumstances without our circumstances mastering us. Finally, and I'm at the end right now in regard to conflict, if, if, if cravings battle inside of us, if circumstances battle outside of us, conflict is the battle between us. Oh man, nothing robs me of my self-control more than when all of a sudden I'm in a conflict. <laughs> I'm gonna experience it today when I get home. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I gotta fly into the airport there in Atlanta and I gotta drive home. Now before I lived 
in Atlanta, Georgia, I lived in Pauley's Island, South Carolina. When I lived in Pauley's Island, South Carolina, beach town, sleep little beach town, I'd fly into Myrtle Beach, I'd take a 30 minute drive home. By the time I'm home, my soul is at peace and in rest. That is not what happens when I fly into Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> I'm gonna take the 45 minute drive home and I'm gonna be in conflict the whole way. And if I'm not careful, I'm gonna preach a sermon on self-control and lose self-control. Because it's oftentimes when, when, when my agenda starts to conflict with other people's agenda that I lose leaning into the spirit. And if you're a leader, this is especially important because leaders oftentimes find themselves unable to avoid conflict. Someone said, if you want to you know, make everyone happy, don't be a leader, sell ice cream. Because here's what happens for us as leaders. Oftentimes, the people that we're leading see an object or an issue or a struggle, and they have a limited purview on it. But as a leader, you know things that they don't know. You see things that they don't see. Your purview's a little bit expanded because of the nature of leadership. And so you're making decisions with a little bit of wider purview than they can see with a little bit narrow purview. And you feel misunderstood because the intention of your heart's not coming through because all they can see is, no, you're making the wrong decision. Which, by the way, gives me great empathy for God because no one's had a greater purview than God, Right? which is why he's probably also the most misunderstood being on the planet because he's looking at all this with a big purview and I got a narrow purview and he's saying, hey, you got to trust what I'm seeing. It feels like it's in conflict with what you're seeing, but I'm seeing something bigger than you. And if you're in leadership, this is the hardest part. You feel misunderstood all the time. And you come into conflict. And when I come into conflict, it's easy to let that conflict and so the, t the temptation in regard to conflict uh, is that I just become whatever you think I am. Oh, you think I'm this? Well, I'll go ahead and become it. Might as well become it if you think it. that's who I am. And in our conflict, we go down the dangerous road of demonizing the other person, then dehumanizing them, and once you've dehumanized them, you can destroy them. I was literally in Israel just a couple of years ago. I went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, and as you watch the story there, it's exactly what happens. How does a people try and exterminate a whole race of people? Well, the first thing you do is you demonize them, and then you dehumanize them, and once you dehumanize them, you can destroy them. But I gotta tell you, that's not just a struggle of Nazi Germany from years ago. If I'm not careful in whatever conflict that I come into, I will start to demonize the other person in my mind. And once I've demonized them, I can dehumanize them and I can destroy them. And the story we have of leadership going bad in our country and even in our churches is our conflict that robs us of our self-mastery. If in our cravings God is building faith and in our circumstances, God is building fortitude that in conflict, he's reteaching us the skill of forgiveness. Jesus in the middle of his forgiveness, in the middle of his conflict in Luke chapter 23, when literally they are crucifying him on a cross, he says this in Luke chapter 23, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
See, the battle here is, is my, my self-mastery, is it greater than my self-protection? So you don't have to be what you need today. You don't have to be what you're going through. And you don't have to be what other people think of you. Walking in the spirit allows you to be what God has had in his imagination from the beginning of time. But my hunch is there's probably one of these battles that you're caught in. The battle of craving or circumstance or conflict and it's threatening to rob. And when you're in the middle of these battles, here's usually our own prayer. God, get me out of it quick. And sometimes he does, but often he doesn't. Why? I love what 2 Peter 3 says. It says, God is not slow as we understand slowness. He is patient, wanting the whole world to come to repentance. So here's the deal. God's plan A for restoring everything in the world is not that he just comes in and takes all the brokenness and all the sin and destroys it. Now he's gonna do that one day, but the Bible says the reason it doesn't come faster is not because God's slow, he's patient. And in his patient, his investment plan is a church who lives in the power of the Spirit with people walking by the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit in a way that goes into every broken place and dares to make it beautiful again. So God is not slow. He's patient because he's given you an opportunity to live truly free. You know what we need? We need people in our country who rise up and dare to live underneath a different kind of freedom, a freedom manifesting the power of God through the spirit of God, becoming who God's designed them to be and not simply distracted in lesser struggles. And this whole series has been about living in the spirit, so that when people taste your life, what they taste is love and goodness. It's, it's hard to even talk about them because they're so mixed in. It's like you can't really have love without kindness, and kindness requires goodness. Like, what do people experience when they taste your life? Is it a watered-down, substituted version of you simply marked by your conflict, your circumstances, or your cravings? Or is it who God designed you to be, living in the power of the Spirit, manifesting freedom wherever you go? Let's pray. Father, I pray for the person in this room right now that feels like they're being defined by one of these three battles, I pray that you would take them back to their baptism and remind them of who you say that they are. I ask for a fresh empowerment of your spirit and your goodness. Lord, I pray for the person who hasn't come to you yet that may be here, and maybe your pain has pushed you away from God and you just wish God would do something about it, but you recognize, man, there are so many people in this room who have a story of suffering that God didn't deliver really quickly because he's making room for you to come in, maybe even today. The reason we're, we're still going after this 
The reason why there is still suffering is not because God is slow, but because he's patient and he's making room for you to come be part of his story. So God, I pray for the person in the room that may have rejected you because of their pain story. Would you give them the confidence and the desire to stumble toward you today, to trust you with their pain? We love you, Lord, in your name, amen.